This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, Tejas Parashar. I'm joined today by Jason Frank to chat about his exciting new book, The Democratic Sublime, on Aesthetics and Popular Assembly, just published by Oxford University Press. Jason Frank is the John L. Senior Professor of Government at Cornell University. His research and teaching interests include democratic theory, American political thought, modern political theory, politics and literature, and political aesthetics. He received his MA and PhD in political science from Johns Hopkins, and before coming to Cornell, he taught at the University of California, Santa Cruz, Duke, and Northwestern. Jason has also held research fellowships at UCLA Center for 17th and 18th Century Studies, Duke's Franklin Institute for Interdisciplinary Research, Uppsala University, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Jason specializes in historically situated approaches to democratic theory, with a focus on the modern history of popular sovereignty. He has published five books, most recently, The Democratic Sublime on Aesthetics and Popular Assembly, which offers an interdisciplinary exploration of how the revolutionary proliferation of popular assemblies, crowds, demonstrations, and gatherings of the people outside out, out of doors came to be a central form of democratic representation in the age of democratic revolutions, and how they remain so today. We'll be discussing this book in today's episode. Jason's other books include Constituent Moments, Enacting the People in Post-Revolutionary America, published by Duke in 2010, Publius and Political Imagination from 2013, A Political Companion to Herman Melville from 2013, and Vocations of Political Theory, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2000. Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Great. So your last book, Constituent Moments, was about invocations of peoplehood and about the issue of popular authorization in the 18th and 19th century uh, United States. What drew you now to a book like The Democratic Sublime, which does uh, look beyond the specific legacy of the American founding? Right. Well, the archive, as you've said, for the first book was almost completely uh, U.S., beginning with debates over popular representation in the decade leading up to the Declaration of Independence and then really ending at the middle of the 19th century with the speeches of Frederick Douglass and the poetry of Walt Whitman. And what I was trying to do in that book uh, as a work of democratic theory was to explore uh, the adventures of a paradox uh, uh, that's pretty familiar for democratic theorists and post-revolutionary 
American political culture. And it's, it's the paradox that democratic theorists sometimes engage in terms uh, of the boundary problem. Uh, and it has a very logical formulation. And it goes like this, you know, the unavoidable and, and deeply contested political question of who makes up a democratic people is not a question that can be democratically decided because it is precisely the identity of the authorizing people who would make that decision that is in question, right? So the, the question subverts the premises of its resolution. Now there's a whole literature in democratic theory on the paradoxes of this dilemma of popular authorization. Uh, some of this work is more analytic and normative and, and some of it is more historical and constituent moments was really a much more historically situated uh, attempt to, to show how this paradox was navigated at, at key moments in post-revolutionary U.S. history. Um, so I came to the, to, to the problem that I explore in this new book. I mean, it was a fairly organic development, I guess, because just as in constituent moments, there's a central problem or paradox that is at the, at the heart of the work that I pick up and I show how it's navigated in a multiple of multiplicity of different contexts. In this book, I'm looking at, at a related problem, and I call it the problem of popular manifestation. It's a more explicitly aesthetic problem, uh, I, I think, than, than, than the way I was approaching the boundary problem or, or, or the problem of who the people are in constituent moments. And it goes something like this. Uh, how the sovereign subject of democratic politics, that is how the people publicly appears, how the people becomes tangible to the senses is also a central dilemma uh, and, 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 and highly contested political issue of this era of democratic revolution. So how the people take shape as a collective actor when the formal rules and procedures for identifying popular will, such as you know, an, an agreed upon electoral procedure, um, either do not exist or are so deeply contested as to be fully deauthorized. So I'm really looking at this question of popular appearance um, in this book, which is how the question of its subtitle, how aesthetics is kind of brought into conversation with these problems of popular of popular assembly. And I think that this is, you know, I try to, to argue in the book, and I hope I, I demonstrate um, that this is a, a continual preoccupation of a wide variety of, of actors, thinkers, artists um, across this period, although it is not a question that has been taken up, uh, really brought into focus by democratic theorists. And, uh, you know, I have a, a way of explaining why I think that is the case, and maybe we can get into it in our, in our further discussion. But, but this kind of turn to this more aesthetic uh, problematic of popular manifestation in this book does explain a slightly different archive. I mean, I do think that I could engage with some of these questions remaining within a U.S. Uh, uh, context, uh, but I really you know, historically, like how, how this book started developing is uh, it came out of a, an essay that I was writing on Edmund Burke and the revolution controversy of the 1790s. 
and it really sprang so so looking primarily at an english and 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 british archive from the end of the 18th century and it really um emerged uh, pretty organically out of that out of that initial exploration and and moved away from the united states to focus first you know on as i said on england and britain but then much more explicitly on 18th and 19th century france yeah, that's a great segue to to um, my first question, which is really the uh, to to say uh, ask you to say a little bit more about this archive in this period. Um, so the the period that's really central to the narrative of the book is what historians often call the age of revolutions, the age of democratic revolutions, about seven decades or so in the Atlantic world from seventeen seven the seventeen seventies to the eighteen forties. You know, you discuss Edmund Burke, as you mentioned, but you also begin the book with Marx's reflections on the failures of the 1848 revolutions in France. So right. uh, could, could you say a little bit about why the age of democratic revolutions is important to your study? What, what is distinctive about this period? Sure. Well, as you know, I mean, this is the period in the West that saw the modern idea of popular sovereignty Uh, not only articulated in various and often conflicting ways, as in, you know, different canonical theorists of political consent uh, and of the social contract, but also very widely disseminated as a legitimating political norm with mass movements claiming the mantle of popular sovereignty as they fought against what they considered the illegitimate and unrepresentative forms of political rule associated uh, with monarchism and and royalism. So the late 18th century revolutions in America and France were, of course, important expressions of this broader development. Uh, You know, Palmer's uh, two volume work on on the age of democratic revolutions is really it it kind of begins with 18th century America and France. Um, But so, too, were the anti-colonial independence movements in Latin America or the insurrection in the French colony of of Saint-Domingue, which led to the creation of Haiti or the Chartist movement in England and and right up to the the many revolutions of the so-called springtime of of peoples in 1848. So this 70-year period um, that saw really the kind of the emergence of popular sovereignty as an increasingly hegemonic legitimating norm, um, does that fact does not say much about uh, how the norm was going to be realized, how it was going to be institutionalized in practice, what modes of political representation were most appropriate, and so on to it. So these these core debates powerfully shaped the politics, um, the things that were really thought about uh, in, in the age of revolution, and really and beyond, clearly up to the present day, and and those questions have been explored in in great detail by political theorists and and political historians. So in this book, I'm trying to explore you know this related but distinct problem of popular manifestation, which is not so much about the institutionalization uh, of this norm or how it can be proceduralized and established in political uh, institutions and law. Uh, instead, I, I'm looking at uh, a related set of kind of aesthetic problems about how the people appears, um, which are not obvious and, and not self-evident. It's related to the question of who the people are, 
but I, I try to make a distinction in the book that it's that that it's a, a, a valuable conceptual distinction to make between who the people are and how the people act. So I do think that democratic theorists have not explored this latter question adequately, um, and I think they haven't done so partly because you know in one way or another we're we're attached to what I I call a thesis of democratic. Um, uh, disenchantment, you know, that that what happens with the emergence of popular sovereignty is a as a hegemonic legitimating norm uh, during this era of revolution is that the the more enchanted forms of political authority that are associated with royalism and monarchism, right, the pomp, the display of the sovereign body, um, the ritualized forms of political authority that many Republican critics of, of uh, royalism uh, made very explicit in their critiques of its illegitimacy. And here, you know, Thomas Paine is one, but a particularly um, interesting and, and articulate example of this kind of critique. But I do think that it's misleading um, because democracy too uh, requires entirely new investments of popular imagination. It elicits intense new forms of collective fantasy, uh, especially around its constituent subject, uh, which is the people. So, you know, you can think about the the, the discourse of, of the king's two bodies, which, you know, many people listening to this will be familiar with and that Kantorovich made famous. You know, one thing about the, the, the discourse, the political theological discourse of the king's two bodies is that the king's body did not have to be imagined. Um, you know, it, it was physically present there wearing the crown and carrying the scepter. But the people are, are never present in that way. Um, they have to be imagined, envisioned. Um, this is why uh, some, and I'm thinking especially of, of uh of Morgan in his great book, Inventing the People, describes popular sovereignty as a more fictive fiction even than royal sovereignty. So that, that kind of problem opens up, you know, you, I guess it creates the, the, the problem space around um, which the chapters in this book revolve. And I begin with Marx uh, in, in that preface because I think Marx, um, in his writings on 1848, he's so he's so interesting on these questions, and and I think those writings really reveal the complicated and in many ways vexed relationship that Marx had to to democracy. In in a lot of his early work, and you know I'm thinking obviously of on the Jewish question, but also his his writings on um, the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right. You know, Marx is really working in a in a in a tradition, a kind of Rousseauian radical democratic tradition. Um, but in 1848, he comes to see and critique democracy and the kind of fetishistic or, or cretinous work of democracy as as a form of ideological obfuscation. So I I begin with Marx as a way of of kind of signaling that what I'm going to be doing in this book is reconstructing democracy's uh, very radical potential in those 70 years leading up to 1848, and also uh, engaging with what 
Marx came to see as democracy operating as a source of power for radically anti-egalitarian and ultimately, I would argue, anti-democratic forms of power, um, as in Louis Napoleon Bonaparte's populist, uh, popular, maybe populist authoritarianism. And, and I think that those are, are still lessons that obviously resonate today. Great. Um, and one philosophical figure through which you begin, through whom you begin to explore this dilemma is, is Rousseau. And this just makes sense. I mean, as you mentioned, Marx himself, the early Marx at least, is, is informed by the Rousseauian tradition. I think as a, as a philosophical figure, Rousseau is kind of a figurehead of the entire uh, age of democratic revolutions. So yeah. could you say a little bit more about the role that Rousseau plays in, the, in this pro- problem space? Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, just uh, most simply, I mean, you know, with it, without going into too much detail with the controversy about <laughs> the different controversies about the, the the political and the scholarly reception of Rousseau, I think everybody agrees that Rousseau is the preeminent modern theorist of of popular sovereignty. Um, I also take him to be the essential modern theorist of the primacy of popular assembly in modern democratic contexts. And in, and in that sense is a very important place to start uh, to help us understand the persistence and power of popular assembly um, as, a, as a distinctive and, and distinctively powerful mode of, of democratic representation. So, so there, is, there is obviously a lot of disagreement around the extent to which even though we can, we can say that Rousseau is a preeminent modern theorist of popular sovereignty, there's a lot of disagreement about whether or not that makes him a theorist of, of democracy. Um, you know, for a long time, Rousseau was a central figure in the Cold War discourse of democratic totalitarianism uh, from figures like Jacob Talman right up to, to Francois Fouet, who, who see Rousseau and his theoretical project as the the, the, the terrible source of, of Jacobinism and, and its echoes in uh, different forms of democratic terror through the 19th and into the 20th century. Um, I think that's a largely, well, I, I don't know if discredited uh, is, is right, but certainly it's, it's a view that's been widely challenged, including by more recent scholars, uh, and, and this would include the important recent work of, of Richard Tuck on, on, on the Sleeping Sovereign, that have turned to Rousseau more as an anticipation of the very kind of liberal constitutionalism that uh, you know the, uh, those who 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 forwarded the democratic totalitarian thesis were were out to defend. So, you know, these these uh, scholars see him as anticipating uh, the Girondins and the American Federalists more than the Jacobins and the revolutionary tradition of popular will. For me, in, in this book, um, I think that Rousseau is deeply attuned to problems of popular will formation, to problems of peoplehood, than either of these different interpretations, you know, kind of broadly outlined here of, of, of Rousseau uh, interpretation adequately recognize. And, and for Rousseau, the problem of popular will formation and the problems of, of the formation of, of peoplehood 
are really what unites his theories of democratic legitimacy, that is his theory of popular sovereignty, and his political aesthetics. So, you know, I won't go into too much detail, you know, uh, from, from, from reading the book. In the chapter on Rousseau, I try to make an argument about the inseparability of his theory of legitimacy and his political aesthetics. Let's just say the important um, uh, conceptual ties between uh, the argument of the social contract and, and texts like uh, the letter to D'Alembert and, and his Emile. And the argument really hinges on the question of popular assembly and the central role of popular assembly across these works, not just the sovereign uh, popular assemblies of the social contract, but um, the festivals and the, the, the spaces of what I call collective self-absorption um, in, in the novels and in, in the not explicitly uh, uh, kind of political writings like, like the social contract. And I should say that, you know, I, I, I reconstruct this, this connection between the theory of popular sovereignty and the aesthetics of, of popular assembly in Rousseau, not to simply affirm or endorse his version of it, but really to reveal how, um, you know, perhaps the paradigmatic modern theorist of popular sovereignty was deeply attuned to these aesthetic questions of popular sovereignty, uh, of popular assembly that I'm focusing on in this book, but that have been largely uh, neglected by contemporary democratic theory. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I think is important to note in your argument is that the assembly is important for Rousseau, even when it's not the general assembly, the sovereign lawmaking assembly of the social contract. It, it performs exactly. yeah, other functions as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's something that's often commented upon um, by readers of Rousseau, by scholars of Rousseau. You know, when you when you get to those passages, famous passages in the social contract where he, he kind of briefly discusses what goes on in the sovereign assemblies, um, you know, it's kind of hard to, to, to wrap your head around it because they're not spaces of of collective deliberation. They're not spaces where popular orators are trying to persuade the assembled to one view or another. They are oddly silent spaces. I mean, that chapter, as you know, is titled Rousseau's Silent Assemblies. Everybody looks into their own heart, but it is crucial that they do so in the collective presence of others. And so I take that as the problem. Like, what is it about that collective co-presence that is so important for Rousseau's argument in the social contract? And in order to develop and elaborate and hopefully um, persuasively reconstruct that argument, I have to look at other uh, parallel assemblies that appear in his more explicitly aesthetic works, and especially uh, the letter to D'Alembert on spectacles um, to kind of, to, to, to lay out the importance of what I call this, this um, aesthetic of collective self-absorption as opposed to collective theatricality. I use a distinction that's pretty famous now from the work of uh, the art historian, Michael Fried, but I don't think that you can really reconstruct that argument um, with, without looking at these more aesthetic uh, works. 
Right. And so the kind of assembly, whether in the General Assembly or the Assembly of Spectacle, is different from, say, being a, a spectator in a theater. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think the whole 18th century distinction, especially an important distinction in, in 18th century French aesthetics, and this is, again, what Michael Fried kind of uh, canonically elaborates between absorption um, and theatricality is to opposed aesthetic modes, modalities of aesthetic experience. I think it's very important for understanding um, what, what Rousseau is, is doing in, in those sections of the social contract where he talks about the citizens looking into their own heart, but in the collective presence of others. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Yeah, the reference to Michael Fried also brought to my mind um, the fact that... Uh, you know, political theorists have really overlooked this this aspect of Rousseau that you bring out, the aesthetic aspect. Um, I I mean, it, as a reader, what was really interesting to me is the fact that you you look beyond the second discourse and the social contract and show the importance of uh, Rousseau's thinking on aesthetics and public festivals and the theater to his broader democratic theory. Do you yeah. could you I mean, do you have a sense of why this has been so neglected for so long in the political theory scholarship on Rousseau? Well, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, political theorists have, uh, and, and, you know, there's there's obviously many different kinds of, of political theory, and Rousseau has been engaged in many different ways. And some political theorists have been more attentive to these dimensions than others. I mean, actually, you know, some Straussian readers of, mm. of Rousseau um, were, were, you know, much more alive, I would say, to to these kinds of considerations as they were to these kinds of considerations in ancient texts like platonic dialogues um, that then are many other uh, of his of of his uh, political theory uh, readers within the within the political theory scholarship so so you know how to explain that i mean political theorists sometimes uh, you know people have said that political theory in recent years say in the past 10 15 years has taken an aesthetic turn um, you know, I think it's taken many different aesthetic turns. I don't think it's one thing. And we could, you know, if you're, we could maybe talk about, talk about that. But I do think that these kinds of questions are much more um, on the radar for political theorists and certainly political theorists that, that, um, you know, do not really work in a more, uh, you know, just say kind of analytic normative vein, but are more historically engaged, um, interested in, in, and and engage with more interdisciplinary uh, scholarship around uh, these canonical figures than than others. But but you know you know from reading the book that I I, I trace this shift in uh, the discourse of popular sovereignty across these years. But it it tracks a shift in aesthetics and especially the aesthetics of the sublime. That is uh, also particularly important, I think, for for the argument that I'm trying to to build in the book around the democratic sublime. So I don't know if you want to talk about that, but that's but th that that is you know th those kind of parallel transformations I think are important to the the argumentative architecture of the book. 
Great. Yeah. I mean, I did want to talk a little bit about the word sublime, which which is, of course, in the book's title. I mean, um, as you point out, the sublime is central to 18th century philosophy, especially to Kant and Edmund Burke. Uh, I mean, one text that uh, came to my mind was Burke's philosophical inquiry into the sublime and the beautiful, which you discuss um, from 1757. So could you say a little bit about what the term sublime means uh, both in the 18th century and then more conceptually for your argument and how it's linked to democracy and popular sovereignty. Sure. Um, so, so I, I guess the best place to start is to say, you know, is, is to talk about this kind of parallel change in the discourse of the sublime um, that I try to, to track across the, the book's different chapters. Um, so aesthetically, um, the shift in the basic norms of political legitimacy and authorization brought about by the emergence of popular sovereignty corresponds to a dynamic I discuss in the book in terms of the imminentization of the sublime. Um, I don't want to get overly technical, but, but I do think it, it, explaining very briefly what I mean by that is, is important. So in, in the most kind of simple terms, the sublime, um, roughly over these same years, moves from an experience of transcendence and most obviously religious transcendence to an aesthetic experience that is engaged with the working and actions of history itself. It's a part of a broad reorientation in the West that can be tracked in literature and in art. It's most obviously and broadly associated um, with romanticism, but it's also explored in great conceptual detail by a number of canonical political theorists. And in the in the book, you know, I I, I the, the the chapters of the book kind of alternate between chapters that 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 pan out to tell a broader historical or reconstruct a broader historical uh, story and those chapters that kind of zoom in to look much more closely and in detail at a, at a single um, canonical theorist and how that theorist wrestled with with the broader issues I'm exploring in the book. So the three the three uh, canonical political theorists that I engage in chapter length detail in the book are all, examples of this imminentization of the sublime. So you have Rousseau um, with this problem of reverential collective self-absorption that I talk about. You have Burke with his uh, elaboration of the historical sublime in the anti-revolution writings. And then you have Tocqueville with this account of the grandeur of the public realm. I mean, as an aside, I will say, I, I think that this broader discourse of the immunization of the sublime reaches something like its democratic apotheosis in some American writers that I've explored in other works, um, especially Walt Whitman, but, but, but also uh, uh, Emerson and, and Melville and others. So the particularities of the democratic sublime that I focus on in the book, which is focused on popular assembly as a source of sublime experience, you can think of as a part of this broader immunization of the sublime, right? So it's a, it's, 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 it's involved in this immunization, but it's really focused on this question of the manifestation of the collective body of the people. So the, 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 
the very idea of the democratic sublime, I guess one thing to say is is fraught with an internal tension. And and I really intended, you know, I wanted to title the book The Democratic Sublime to, to hopefully convey some sense of the tension between these two central terms. Because on the one hand, democracy is associated with the collective assertion of human autonomy. And on the other hand, the aesthetics of the sublime is associated with uh, that which escapes human reason, human instrumentality, human representation. Um, the sublime is closely linked to the ineffable, to the presentation of that which cannot be represented. So in the book, I try to approach this tension not as a contradiction, but as what I call a dynamic synthesis of, of antagonistic concepts that gets worked out and politically navigated around um, the politics of popular assembly over, over uh, you know, over this, this period. So I really am interested in focusing in the book on how popular assembly becomes the location of a sublime experience, a source of sublime awe, where a newly empowered people at once manifests its collective power, while also and at the same time remaining forever uh, ineffable or beyond any single given form or assembled manifestation. Uh, you know, for me, the the quote that that best captures kind of the idea that I'm 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 wrestling with in this book, and I thought about using this quote as an epigraph for the book, but um, I opted for the the Tocqueville quote instead. Is is a quote kind of paraphrasing Robespierre when he says uh, before the convention that the people must see themselves assembled in order to feel their power. Like that really does capture something that's, that's pretty, pretty central to the, to the heart of this book and its concerns. And does the sensation um, of, of feeling of, of encountering the sublime and the, uh, the word awe, you know, the kind of awe that one feels in the presence of the sublime, does it continue to be rooted in rationality or does it transcend reason at some, in some sense? Well, I mean, I, you know, that does get you into questions of philosophical aesthetics that I, that I do engage probably in most detail in the, in the Burke book and a little bit in, in the introduction. But, you know, I, I, I turn to, to Burke's aesthetics as, as particularly important um, to the argument that I try to develop here, because I think for Burke, in the experience of the sublime, there is it, it is always an experience of of human limitations transgress. There is always a sense of a of a, a check on uh, the capaciousness of human reason and autonomy, even in the, if in the face of the democratic sublime, that's also being asserted. Now, you know, with Kant, it's a very different picture, and I and I. I talk about this pretty briefly in the in the introduction, where it where sublime experience ultimately does lead to recuperation and encounter with um, with with you know the 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 incredible capaciousness and power of human reason itself. So what's experience say as 
a, a sense of our own finitude or limitation when we experience the sublime in nature for Kant, there's another move uh, where we come to appreciate the autonomy and the grandeur, the awesomeness of the freedom of human will um, set against the determinations of, of nature. So there's a kind of a recuperation of the power of reason in, in Kant's aesthetics of the sublime that is, that is very different, obviously. I mean, you know, his, the, the kind of transcendental idealism of Kant is very different than, than, than Burke's um, uh, more empirical aesthetics. But, but I, I, really focusing on that question of, of the experience of limitation and fititude rather than, than reintegrating it within a, an, a, a, an experience of, of human capacity and reason is one of the reasons that I turned to Burke rather than Kant. Yeah, that's great. I also love that uh, Robespierre quote. I do think it really captured what you were what you were trying to um, tell us with the, the the term sublime. Thank you. Yeah. Um, now, in chapter three of the book, you you um, track this the aesthetics of the sublime by looking at pictorial representations of popular politics, particularly those produced in the wake of the French Revolution. Um, and I just wanted to ask why you chose this as an archive for thinking about the sublime, the, the and and about democratic sovereignty. What does the visual image give us? Yeah. Well, in that chapter, you know, I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book as a whole, I mean, one of the reasons why it has the, um, you know, I guess somewhat idiosyncratic, at least on first glance archive that it has, you know, moving between uh, mm -hmm. canonical works of political theory, visual culture, poetry, the memoirs of popular insurgents, and so on, is because I'm trying to show how this problem of popular manifestation, the question of how the people appear, um, emerges as an unavoidable prob political problem in this period. But it's not only a problem that you can excavate if you limit yourself to um, you know, canonical works of political theory or constitutional speeches or, you know, the more formal arenas of politics. But you have to see how these much more uh, self-evidently uh, political questions of popular appearance are intermingled with um, simultaneous debates uh, in the period uh, on a more aesthetic register about how the the people are aesthetically depicted. Now that can mean in poetry, that can mean um, in, 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 in novelistic narrative. You know, I have long descriptions of, of, of uh, Hugo on, on the barricades, for example. But I do think that these debates over, uh, over in visual culture and pictorial representation are also important sites for seeing uh, the, the interpenetration of these political and aesthetic questions when it comes to representing popular will. So in the chapter on the living image of the people, you know, one of the things that I was, it, it begins really with the 17th century debates during the English Civil War as Republicans begin to articulate in a very early form the, the kind of norm of popular sovereignty and how they were also faced when critiquing royalism and royal authority with um, the, the, the persistence of, um, of 
the kind of aesthetics of royal portraiture, you know, that there's a kind of, that there's something intransigent about also getting rid of, of the aesthetics of, of royal power that, that these Republicans in the 17th century had to confront. And that then becomes again, particularly acute in, uh, in France uh, after 1789. So, uh, I, you know, I, I try to track and very uh, relying heavily on the excellent work of many art historians um, and also political historians of this period to, you know, I, I, I describe that chapter as a, a historiographical survey with theoretical intent because I'm trying to outline the kind of interpenetration of these problematics as they then come fully into view in the years after the French Revolution, where the question of how to represent popular will is the central political question and also uh, the central kind of aesthetic uh, question and concern, um, especially during the, peri the, the revolution's most um, period of, of most intense radicalization under the Jacobins. And I talked a little bit about uh, uh, David's uh, engagement with these questions in that chapter. Now, I will say that in looking back on that chapter, I wrote that chapter pretty early, actually. It was one of the first two chapters that I wrote in this book. It appeared in different form in a journal. And I think that if I would have written that chapter today, I mean, one of the things that I think is implicit in that chapter, but I, I think I could have done more to make it explicit, is to focus, you know, I'm focusing on this question of the living image of the people. So the chapter ends not with just different um, pictorial representations of popular uh, will, say, uh, you know, Delacroix's uh, Liberty Leading the People is a very famous uh, romantic uh, attempt to, to uh, wrestle with this problem, or the, the Hercules with the, the club as the depiction of a kind of radical picture of, of popular will. But I'm very interested in how the, the canvas or the, the, the stone sculpture comes to be seen as wholly insufficient to a living image of the people and instead how festivals and different forms of kind of choreographed and orchestrated assembly are, are taken to be the carriers of, of this experience of, of um, the, the kind of sublime experience of the people. And I think that movement from, say, the canvas to the to stone to to actual physical enactments um, of 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 assembled uh, crowds um, in uh, wrestling with the aesthetics of this period is is very important to the to the story that I'm telling. And I think it's kind of implicit in that chapter, but I think um, I, I I wish that I had brought it into a I guess a clearer theoretical articulation than I did. Yeah, that's really that. That actually gets to to a kind of follow up uh, question that I had, which is, you know, the the pictorial image that we're often most familiar with in the history of political thought is the frontispiece to Hobbes's Leviathan, which you discuss, which is also kind of a performance of sovereignty and the and kind of create creating a feeling of awe in the presence of an all powerful sovereign. And I was going to ask whether this republican use of uh, pictorial images kind of reworking that Hobbesian tradition. But it strikes me that the, this kind of the turn to the festival and physical reenactment is really not something that ever existed in, in the Hobbesian framework. Uh, this does seem to be a novel kind of development in the age of revolution. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but, you know, the, the frontispiece and, and the entire argument of the Leviathan, um, you know, you have to know where to look for the source of sovereign authority, the one who ultimately decides uh, between conflicts within the polity, right? So the authority emanates from the head of the sovereign and all of those beholden subjects are, you know, whose uh, backs are turned to the reader holding the frontispiece in his or her hands, right? But they're gazing up at the sovereign's head, you know, as as is the reader. We're kind of interpolated as uh, visually interpolated as a part of um, that gathering of subjects. And the dynamics that I'm tracing in this book, and, you know, maybe Rousseau is a very important place to, to begin, you know, the sovereign is ourselves. So that, that dynamic of kind of a collective self-absorption or a reverential self-regard, um, I do think marks a, a very interesting and important, um, an important break from, yeah, I guess what you can see is the, uh, as a kind of Habesian tradition, but it's, it's more, Broadly, uh, a, a tradition. I mean, when when Hobbes was helping to devise that frontispiece, the the traditions and the aesthetic repertoires of royal portraiture were very much in mind. But he 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 adds so crucially those other dimensions um, to the visual image to make it a kind of condensed pictorial uh, representation of the argument of the Book of Leviathan as a whole. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, so, you know, the final kind of historical figure or figure in the history of political thought I wanted to ask you about is Tocqueville, who um, you know, the epigraph to the book is is a, is a quote from Tocqueville. So I, I, I um, you know, Tocqueville, as you say, is really attentive to this d- desire for self-regard on the part of democratic societies, on the part of democratic people. But he's also a skeptical observer of democracy of modern democracy in some sense yeah so so could you say a little bit about where Tocqueville is exactly located in relationship to this uh, tradition of popular sovereignty and assembly yeah um so you know one of the one of the chapters of of democracy in America that I I thought was I found very interesting to to think with as I was working on this book and and, and not only as I was working on the chapter on Tocqueville is the the chapter that discusses um, poetry in the democratic age, you know, and, and, you know, for Tocqueville, the, the people themselves become the source of a kind of poetic in inspiration. Um, he says, and I'm just going to quote from the epigraph. This is the epigraph to the book. Democratic peoples can be very amused for a moment by considering nature, but they get really excited only by the side of themselves. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, in that chapter, Tocqueville is important for me because of the critique that he levels uh, you know, and this is in Democracy in America, but I think this is, for me, it becomes especially poignant and interesting in, in many of his letters from the 1840s, kind of leading up to the revolution of 1848, where he's critiquing the, the low-sided mediocrity 
of of his age and it's a it's a mediocrity that he associates with democracy but it's also a mediocrity that he associates with um uh an an interest-based politics uh the bourgeois politics of the july monarchy everything that reduces the public realm to um, instrumentality to base economic calculations and interests and for him the realm of the aesthetic is is a realm and not just for him but uh, you know this is certainly a, a broader kind of argument in the period um, it, it points to that those dimensions of human experience that transcend instrumentality transcend interest transcend need that are that are larger than uh, base concerns and and point to the kind of inspiration of of a realm that is beyond uh, calculations of interest and need. So for for Tocqueville, what becomes most important, and certainly in the French context, is is you know heroic and often uh, violent uh, colonial forms of conquest that promise to re-endow the public realm with its lost sense of of grandeur um, in the united states and in the writings on on democracy in america it is a little bit it, it is more complicated um, you know i it, it, there's there's clearly resources to draw upon from the american experiment with democracy um, you know from the puritan townships the localism the decentralized forms of authority, the long habituation and cultivation of what he calls the arts of liberty, um, but also the important role of, uh, of a certain important role of religion in American public life. Uh, these are resources that the French do not have to, to draw upon. So in that, in that chapter, you know, I really focus on, on, on the problem of grandeur um, as an example of the kind of sublimity of the public realm in in Tocqueville, but it's clearly not uh, a democratic um, uh, source of the sublime in the public realm. Instead, I think you you get a sense of that potential sub popular sublime, democratic sublime, in some of Tocqueville's very critical writings. Uh, in the souvenirs on the on the revolutions of 1848, and especially in his account of the barricade actions of February, May, uh, and then again in June of that year. Yeah, so he is attentive to the differences between the democratic sublime and the kind of sublime aesthetics that he associates with the aristocracy, exactly. both with the, the old regime in France and then with, you know, aristocratic elements of American society, say. Exactly. Yeah. So now stepping outside of the um, 18th and 19th centuries for a second, you know, uh, one thing uh, you, you discuss in the book is how there has been a burst of interest in the politics of popular assembly within political and critical theory generally. So I'm thinking here of Judith Butler's book on assembly from 2015, which you discuss, but also of Hart and Negri. Yeah. Um, could you say a little bit about how you're situating these arguments about the relationship between popular assembly and aesthetics and the sublime to this recent uh, body of work on, on assembly? Sure. Um, look, in this book, 
I, I'm interested in understanding the emergence and the persistence of popular assembly um, as a distinctive and distinctively powerful form of democratic representation. For me, this means embedding popular assembly and the aesthetics of popular assembly within the fraught and conflictual history of popular sovereignty itself. Um, that is not something that, that either Butler does in her performative um, theory of popular assembly. And it's certainly not something that, that Hart and Negri do in, um, well, in any of their books, but, but, but especially in their book on, on uh, the more recent book on assembly. I mean, in some ways I find Negri's earlier work on constituent power, uh, you know, I, I feel much more affinity and, and take much more inspiration from, from that, that dimension of his work. I mean, for one, with Hart and Negri, I mean, sovereignty is not their operative term. Uh, as you know, it's, 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 and it's not the people, it's the multitude. They think that it, it, it's imminence and materialism um, escapes the, the dilemmas and the, 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 the problematics of, of representation. I'll just kind of leave that aside. <laughs> but, but I do see it as, as a quite different project. I do see more affinity with 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 Judith Butler's um, performative theory of, of assembly, um, although I, I have a much more historical genealogy of some of the problems that she's looking at in that book. I mean, I, I think one of the things in her book that I um, that I, I, I find most interesting and I think is 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 very perceptive is the whole account that she has of how um collective assembly in public squares in and of itself can be seen as a speech act beyond the specific claims that are being uh, made by those assembled. Like, I think that's a very rich um, theoretical terrain to explore. And I think she does it, uh, you know, very um, with typical insight and, and and brilliance in that book, but I do think that the I, I guess what I would characterize as the kind of ethical turn that that, that she then takes in that book, um, the emphasis on shared corporeal precarity as being an important part of understanding of understanding the work of these collective assemblies. That turn is not one that I take because I really am embedding it within this history of popular sovereignty. And I'm, I'm interested in popular enactment and collective power. And uh, again, to return to that Robespierre quote, that idea that um, the people must see themselves assembled in order to feel their power, to, to, to feel themselves as a part of a collectivity that is capable of undertaking radical political reforms and and change. I just think that's a different uh, a different set of 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 theoretical emphases that I'm making in this book. Although although you know as you know I in, in reading it I, I I engage with some of this work and I clearly um, I, I can see the resonance between between uh, this book and and that work even though I think they ultimately set off in in, in quite different directions. Yeah, I mean, is it right to say that um, the ethical is less of a direct concern for the tradition of uh, aesthetic assembly and popular um, assembly that you're tracking? I think that's safe to say. I, I mean, I think, you know, uh, that that could be a whole discussion of its own about um, 
of, about what kind of work a book like this is doing as a work of democratic theory. Uh, is it normative democratic theory and so on? I mean, of course, there's normative dimensions to this 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 book, but um, as with constituent moments, I'm more interested in laying out and clearly clearly identifying a political dilemma or problematic, and then looking at the the historically specific and contextually rich ways in which that dilemma was engaged and navigated by political actors, kind of viewing it from the perspective of political actors across these different histories and, and geographies of democratic history. Right. And you know, one, one, one point that um, Hart and Negri make in their book is that there has been a proliferation of lead, what they call leaderless social and political movements across the yeah. globe since 2011. I mean, I think we can argue about whether such movements are necessarily novel, um, or, or at least novel to the extent that they sometimes make them out to be. But I, I do think that they are onto something about the scale of popular mobilization in the 2010s since the Arab Spring. So was, all this, was all this on your mind as you, as you were working on the book? Uh, yes, very explicitly. Um, they mark the political motivations of the book. I mean, I, I really started thinking about this book um, uh, as I was finishing Constituent Moments and 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 writing the book on 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 Publius and political imagination. So, which is to say, I, I started thinking about this book right around 2011. So. Uh, you know, the Arab Spring, the movements of the squares of 2011, uh, the indignados in Spain and Greece occupy all of these movements that emerged uh, through a kind of remarkable international renewal of the cycle of collective protest against austerity and against the financial crisis of 2008, uh, leading all the way up, you know, Gezi Park in 2013 and the Hong Kong democracy protests of 2019 and the movement for black lives in the US last summer and so on. All of these things were, were, were in my mind and it really did, you know, it, 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 it made very concrete the question. It's just a very basic question. You know, movements like these uh, that live uh, through collective enactments of popular assembly have uh, accompanied the emergence and the history of modern democracy since the beginning. Um, and democratic theorists have had surprisingly little to say about the role of crowds, gatherings of people out of doors, mass popular assembly, uh, and the role they play in this history. You know, what is it about the experience, about experiencing oneself among a large collectivity of others that is so deeply formative of uh, the subjectification that's characteristic of democratic citizenship? So the, the movements that you're talking about, I mean, they, they just made this question not just a, you know, a, a kind of theoretical question. Like this is, we, we've, we've spent a lot of time thinking about ratio-critical publics and theories of the public sphere, but really bringing the history and the persistence of crowds and popular assembly into the central focus of democratic theory and, and as a central part of the modern democratic imaginary um, 
uh, strikes me as as an important undertaking for democratic theorists. So so in, in that sense, uh, this book really does emerge directly from from questions that were uh, stimulated by by the movements that you mentioned. Yeah, and the and the the aesthetic dimension and, and representations of popular action have also been so central to these movements. I mean, just that photograph of the people gathered in Tahrir Square, I think, of course, is do is doing so much political work just in and of itself. I agree. I mean, the people gathering in Tahrir Square, uh, and and these enormous screens set up around the square, so they could watch themselves as they were being broadcast uh, and and these how these televisual images of this collective gathering were being kind of projected around the world and they were watching themselves. You know, it, it just seemed like such a poignant uh, it, it, contemporary exemplification of this of this idea of, of the people seeing their power by by watching themselves in assembly, uh, although in this case, televisually mediated. Right. And then finally, what are you working on now? Uh, what are you looking forward to for your next projects? Uh, well, I'm, I'm wrapping up a few smaller things, but uh, the next book project um, is 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 going to be a pop a more popular press book on uh, the current crisis of democracy. And, uh, you know, I can't say too much about it. I will say it begins with a, a broader historical contextualization of the, of, of, of the architecture, the kind of conceptual architecture of the critiques of democracy that you get from the neoliberal dismantling of democratic collective authority on the one hand and the ethno-nationalist authoritarian um, uh, dismantling of democracy on the other. So it's all, I, the, this book is going to be a way of setting up a reconsideration of whether democracy contains, you know, the big questions, the resources to confront the most urgent challenges that we collectively face um, in uh, terms of radical economic inequality, rapid technological change, and of course the unfolding climate catastrophe that we're, we're, we're all facing. And, and the book is being provisionally titled Democracy at the End of the World. Yeah, it's a sobering title. <laughs> yes. But, but accurate, I think. I figured, I figured yeah. like, go with an ambitious title and hope that the book could actually hit that mark. <laughs> Great. Well, I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Jason. This, this was a pleasure. I loved reading the book, as I told you. Um, I think it's very exciting. Thank you very much, Justin. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed the conversation.